So Friday rolls around, right? Thursday night, we had spent some time with some friends, uh, Elements folks, and we're packing 400 hygiene kits into these little drawstring bags. And Friday, we get to the office, and we load them up, and a few of us meet there at the school. And, um, you know, tonight we're going to talk about sacrifice. Sacrifice is the idea of giving up something, maybe becoming disadvantaged in a way so that something greater and something better can happen. And we're going to see that in the life of Jesus in, in Mark chapter 14. But you all live that out in a little bit of a way. And I want to celebrate that because I think it's worth celebrating in the sense that, that we as a church have always said, Element City Church, we want to be the church. Not just play church, not just talk about church. We actually want to be the church. And the church is the expression and hope and grace and power of Jesus in this world kind of put on display so that people can bump into it. And whatever they believe about Jesus, whatever they have come to, to kind of put their own thoughts about or what they you know, don't like or what they doubt or just, it doesn't matter what those things are. Just if we can put Jesus on display, here's what I'm convinced about. If we just put Jesus on display and let people bump into him a little bit, I think our schools would be better. I think our world would be better. I know your life would be better. And so maybe you're here tonight and like church is like way off your radar screen and somehow someone snookered you into coming here. And that's just, I'm really glad you're here. And, and I hope that maybe you see in the way we worship, or I'm going to teach for a little bit and then we're going to worship a little bit more. And that just maybe somewhere in these moments that you'd see us being the church because we really believe Jesus said, go be the church. And so you all got to see that. And we just put together a little tiny quick video to show you expression of this. And I'll talk a little bit about it on the other side of that. So let's just watch this together. Have you ever felt, oh, have you ever felt like that? Like you're just, just rushing through life. Like you don't have time for your friends or the world outside. Well, I've been there. We gotta slow it down. Take a look around. did an amazing job filling all those kits. And I just want to tell you, um, like the child in there, they had no hair and the struggle he's going through. And he looks at me and I go, look at him and I go, you, you don't need a hairbrush, do you? And he goes, no, but my mom does. And I thought, <laughs> so, um, there was kids in there who would, uh, it'd be like, how many of you remember Christmas morning when you were a kid? It was like that for hygiene kits. Really? Like, I'm not making that up. It was like Christmas morning with hygiene kits. One kid's going, wait a minute, I get my own toothbrush? I don't have to share with my brother anymore? We're going, please don't. Here's your own. Take two. Um, so uh, it was just, it was super awesome to see just the looks on these kids' faces. And you all got to make a difference in 400 kids 
who go home and have 400 different stories of how God took notice of them. And it was amazing. Maria, the principal there, she wrote uh, a couple words to me this morning. She said this, on behalf of all our students, faculty, uh, and our staff, I send our gratitude and say thank you to Element City Church for your generous act of love and compassion that just moved us. And so you all got to be a part of that. And that's the church getting to be the church. You know, we, we followed through on something that we said we were going to do because we really believe that we follow a Savior who followed through for us. And we want to just follow his example the best we know how and to do that in tangible ways. And we know we can't fix everything, but we can do for one what we wish we could do for everyone. And so in different ways from time to time, we're going to have opportunities to, to be the church and to do some things because it makes a difference and it lets people know that um, people do care. And it's more than just generosity. Generosity is a good thing. And uh, John B. Wright, I tell you, has some incredible people who are pouring and investing in that. We are not the first. We are not the last. We are simply kind of piggybacking on what's already been done there, what's been going on. And there's some amazing people there that I wish you could meet that have been doing lots of things over the years. And I know that that's going to continue. But for those kids on that day, you made a difference for them. And you told a story that life isn't just their little story of what they know. There's something bigger going on, and there's something that maybe they're invited into. And so we want to continue to do that in a way. And tonight, I want us to continue in our series uh, called No Other Name. We're kind of walking our way through the Gospel of Mark. In the Gospel, remember, if you're kind of new to church, there's four Gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. They all kind of tell the story of the life and the ministry, the death and resurrection of Jesus. And, and to give us kind of some vantage points uh, of how things went and, and what was said and, and how things unfolded. And tonight, I want us to look at one in um, Mark chapter 14. And I want us to look at a meal and then a sword. And that doesn't make any sense to you right now. But I'm hoping by the end, it will make sense to you. So a meal and a sword. How many of you have eaten a meal before? That would be everyone participating. Otherwise, you're a liar. So, we've all eaten a meal, right? Now, we have a continuum of meals, right? Maybe on one side of continuum, we have the fast food meal. How many of you know this meal? This is the meal you grab, and like, if you are a parent, you like grab extra bags, and you kind of throw it in the back seat towards your kids, and you're like, hey, feed your face something, right, as you're on your way to something next, right? How many of you have been on the receiving end of a meal like this, right? Okay, on the other end of that continuum, we have maybe what we know to be like the greatest meal that we all have, maybe potentially most of us have, is on Thanksgiving, right? And Thanksgiving, we would refer to as the meal, right? So we have a meal, and we have many of these kind of meals, and there's things, and there's everything in between, right? But what we know about this meal, the Thanksgiving meals, we know there's like pomp and circumstance to it, right? How many of you start your Thanksgiving day? It's not like in a meal for you. It's like Thanksgiving day, right? Now, some of you start like at nine in the morning earlier, you're cooking things, you're making things, you got music going, you got people coming over, football's on, you got conversations, you got, we have a, a tradition where we do a puzzle. I don't, because I hate puzzles, it's my own personal hell. But um, my, a lot of my family does puzzles, and they love puzzles, and that's awesome for them, different strokes, different folks, it's cool. So, um, you know, they, they love that, and there's, there's a whole bunch of stuff that goes on, but somewhere around the meal, there has a moment where we just kind of, we all gathered around, and, and everything's there, and it's a plethora, and it feeds an army, and it's like, this is ridiculous, how much food is here, right? You ever feel that way? And then you're there, and you kind of have a moment where you just kind of say, wow, 
there's something significant about this meal that's way different than like McDonald's being thrown in the back, right? There's something different about that meal because there's something about this meal where it, it causes you to pause and to think and to ponder a little bit of life, doesn't it? In some ways, it's, it's a rough moment because we ponder maybe some loss that we went through. Someone that's not at the table that year that was the year before. And it can stir emotions that way. And sometimes it can stir good emotions along with that. It can stir emotions where you you see the faces and the smiles of those gathered around. You realize, man, I'm blessed. Right? And there's something about this moment that causes some significance. And it causes us to ponder in a way that that no other meal kind of does. And I want you to keep that in mind. As we look at this meal that Mark chapter 14 begins to put, uh, kind of give us a display, kind of gives us a look into, kind of peek behind the curtain into this meal. Because this is a meal that the Jewish followers of, of, of God would have been very familiar with. In fact, it's called Passover. How many of you have heard that before? So if, if you haven't, there's this meal that uh, Jews still today uh, observe Passover. And there's this meal, and there's a lot of significance and symbolism. And, and, like, it would be one of those meal moments, not like one of those other meals. It would be something very significant about this particular meal. And as they go through this, they would have symbolism that they would talk about. There would be someone who would preside over this meal, and they would go through this mantra that in every certain section of this meal, there would be symbolism to it that would have to be explained, that people would have to understand. And so they would bring things out and talk about it. And tonight, here's what I want us to think about as we go through this meal and as we go through this moment of confrontation with the sword, is this big idea for tonight is this. The deliberate sacrifice Jesus made for us makes a way for us to have true freedom in life with God. Everything that's going to happen in this moment that we're going to look at is about creating freedom and giving life with God a possibility, but it cost Jesus something. It's a sacrifice. It's something deliberately given up and taken. There's a disadvantage in order that we might have something greater, and that's something that's for us to see. So this meal is going on in verse uh, 12, chapter 14, it says this. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, this is the Passover feast that would have gone for a few days, and there would have been a lot of pomp and circumstance around it, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb. Now, you might look at that and go, whoa. What? Yeah, I'll come back to that. Jesus' disciples ask him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for us to eat this meal, this Passover, together? And so he kind of gives these instructions. Let's go into town. You're going to meet this guy. They're like, okay, we've never met this guy. Just go talk to this guy. He's got a room. It'll all be good. So they go into the room. They meet this guy. They don't met, met this guy, but they met the guy, and then he, he's got a room. And so uh, he's all got this worked out, and so they're working toward that. Now, the Passover meal is something that for, thousand, for about a thousand years or so, would have been going on, and there would have been symbolism behind it, because it harkens back to the days of Exodus. And now, if you don't know much about the Bible, Genesis is the very first book of the Bible, and then Exodus kind of tells the whole story of how God's people were held in slavery in Egypt, and how God rescued them out of that slavery, out of that bondage, and brought them to be his people. And now it's the whole story of that, and there's some tremendous, incredible, amazing things that happen. And maybe you're sitting here and go, I don't know if I buy all that. Well, that's okay if you don't. If you've got questions or doubts about that, but I'm here to tell you, I really believe this happened. 
and that because there's been so much evidence toward it, biblically and non-biblically, that I believe this is really what happened. And so you see, begin to understand that there's some symbolism that's going on here. Let me kind of paint the picture here a little bit. There's some plagues that God is sending uh, on Pharaoh and his people and his leadership there to say, hey, you've got to let my people go, right? And that's the old song, if you've been in church for a long, let my people go. And, you know, it's a, it's a bad song. We don't sing it anymore. Um, <clears throat> and I certainly don't sing. But the only way for your family to escape this is so the plagues have been going on. Pharaoh is kind of still super, super stubborn and not giving up and kind of not releasing the people. And so he says, no, no, no. God finally says, look, I'm going to send one more plague. It's my final divine judgment. And it's heavy. It's really heavy. It's not about locusts anymore, and it's not about frogs anymore, and it's not about blood in the water. This, this is heavy, and this is going to be for everybody. In fact, it used to be that the plagues were just happening to the Egyptian people and that the Jewish people were spared. And God says, no, this divine judgment is for everybody, but there's, there's a but here, and that's it's a really good thing that there's a but here. Uh, God says, look, um, but I'm going to make a, a substitutionary uh, allotment, atonement here, uh, and out for you. In fact, this divine judgment is a heavy one. It's the firstborn son of every family is going to die. And I'm going to send this death angel over. And, uh, and that seems really heavy. That seems really dark. And it is. It just is. There's no way around that. And But God sets up an establishment and says, look, if you will take a lamb, and he gives specific instructions to that, and if you will slaughter that lamb, and you will take the blood of that and put it over your doorpost, then that angel will pass over your house, hence the name. Pass over your house, and you'll be spared. Your son, your family will be spared that. And so this hall plays out. And there's this incredible uproar and, and this horrible um, incident of death, this divine judgment that God sends. And in that moment, in the middle of the night, Pharaoh calls for Moses and says, get your people out of here. I've had enough. And so the whole, uh, a whole lot of Israel is set free and brought out of the bondage of slavery. And we look at that and we, and we see, wow, that, that's kind of harsh in some way. But you have to understand this was... This was divine power that no one orchestrated. No one set up a campaign in order to try to overthrow this and and create some kind of rebellion. This was something that God was at work doing and providing a way for his people. And so the symbolism of this is very rich, and I don't have time to go into all of it. But it kind of goes on here in verse 22. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and he gave thanks, and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. And so there's four different times where they would have taken bread, and they would have taken wine, they would have blessed it, and they would have passed it around for people to see. And those four different things were tied to four different promises. Four promises were rescue from Egypt, freedom from slavery, redemption by God's divine power, and a renewed relationship with God. And this third time that it comes around to this part of the meal, now think about it. You're one of the disciples. Like Passover, you get... You've been there. You've done that. This is our Thanksgiving, right? Like, we understand the symbolism of it. We get it. We know about it. We've been through this every single time it comes around. But in this moment, Jesus stands up. He takes the cup. He takes the bread. And he deviates away from the script that has been for a thousand years. Think about that as a disciple, as an early follower of Jesus. You're sitting there realizing... Uh, phew, did Jesus forget? 
like the script, it doesn't go this way, right? And Jesus goes, no, this is my body, broken for you. And he passes it around to his disciples. And this meal suddenly takes an interesting twist for these disciples. And they start realizing there's something different going on here. And Jesus begins to unpack and begins to explain, this is my body given for you. Take this cup, he gives thanks, he offers it. This is my blood of my covenant, of a new covenant that's being given to you. I tell you the truth, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. Imagine the astonishment for those guys as they're sitting there. What does this mean? Jesus says, this is my body. This is, see, bread meant back then the bread of of affliction. It's what sustained them in the desert as they were moving along. And God, you know, kind of brought manna to them and said, this is how I'm going to sustain you. But it was part of their affliction of going through this whole exodus process. And Jesus says, this is the bread of my suffering. This This is the bread of my affliction. He starts personalizing this. That had to be an interesting twist of what's going on. In ancient times, when someone says, look, I'm not going to eat or drink of this again until blah, 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 until whatever they put that, there was an oath that they were taking, and it meant something. Like for us, when we typically say, look, I'm going to do this if it kills me, right? And then what often we do is we stop, because we're like, I don't want to die. Um, and so we don't do our homework, or we don't finish a project, or we don't weed the yard, or we don't, you know, we, we give up on that. But in the ancient times, if you said something like that, you meant it with a severe oath. In fact, in Acts chapter, I think, 23, there's some guys that hate Paul at this moment, right? And they're trying to get after Paul. And so much so, they take this oath, and they say, we're not going to eat or drink. They take this fasting oath until Paul is dead, Right? So everything goes on hold until this mission is accomplished. Well, Paul gets rescued. So I don't know if they died of starvation or not, but because he wasn't there around, he got rescued from that. But they took this oath. And what they were saying in that moment is literally back in the ancient times, they would take an animal and they would split it open. And I know that sounds gruesome. And they would walk between it and say, I'm making an oath. May, may this, what just happened here, happen to me if I don't fulfill it. <laughs> Aren't you glad your AT&T cell phone contract isn't that way? That'd be rough, huh? So they just, you know, bleed your wallet dry. But um, that's a severe thing. And in the ancient times, that would have been like, oaths meant something. They had a weight to them. And so Jesus is making this oath. Look, I'm going to follow through on what I'm saying. This is my body. This is my blood given for you. See, with these simple gestures of holding up the bread and of holding up the wine, Jesus is saying, all those Passovers before, all the lambs of Passover, all the sacrifices about the deliverance of Exodus, what you need to know is all of them were pointing to me. That is a profound statement. You may not buy that. You may look at that and go, I don't know. It seems kind of bravado. I mean, it just seems kind of out there. Well, you have to understand as you get to know Jesus a little bit more, he, he was kind of out there. He's not ordinary. And if you're looking for an ordinary Jesus, you're going to look for a long time. Because Jesus was extraordinary in what he did. And, and we really believe this whole series built on no other name. We really mean that. We kind of say we believe that there's no other name on the planet that fulfills a love and fulfills a grace and and brings a mercy 
like the name of Jesus. That there's no other name that has influenced history like the name of Jesus. There's no other name that has changed hearts thousands and thousands of times over like the name of Jesus. And so either he is a liar, he's a lunatic, or he really is who he says he is. And so you've got to make up your decision and make up your mind on that. And we talked about that a couple weeks ago when Jesus looked at his followers and said, who do, you, who do people say I am? Who do you say I am? And so there's this investigation, this wrestling with this question that everybody has to come to answer. And so maybe as you begin to look a little bit deeper into this, Jesus is pointing to something that's, it is profound, but it's poignant. And it's got the potential to change everything. As Jesus is looking back, see, you have to understand the Passover meal uh, would have always had a lamb. Why? Do you remember the first verse we read? On the day that was typical to sacrifice the Passover lamb. Here's what would happen. Lambs would be adopted for about a week. There'd be a big run on the lamb store, okay? And all these woolly lambs would come home, and they would be pets. I know this is weird, and this gets weird. Um, And they would have pets, pet lambs, for about a week. And then this day would roll around, and as Passover gets ready to celebrate, you need a meal, right? So where do you go? Hey, woolly buddy. I know you've been playing with my kids all day. And suddenly, you have a meal. Because Passover wasn't a vegetarian meal, and maybe you're vegan. Good for you. Jesus wasn't. Um, But, yes. Um, Sorry, Phil. Here's the deal. They would have lamb at this Passover meal. But here's Jesus gathered with his early followers. Here's the interesting thing. In all four gospel accounts, there's not one mention of lamb being at this Passover meal. For a thousand years, this is what would have happened. And so Jesus has already deviated from the script. And now you've got to be an early follower of Jesus, and you're looking around going, Hey, uh, where's the lamb? Was I supposed to get that? Peter? Peter? Was that you? Me? I, I don't know. Can you imagine the little conversations that are happening? Where, where's, where's the meat? Like, we're not vegetarians here. Where's the meat? And you have to understand, I think this is the moment where Jesus is saying, this is my body. This is my blood. See, the lamb wasn't at the table, on the table. He was at the table. The lamb of God sat there in their midst. When John the Baptist first saw Jesus, and he said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so in this moment, Jesus is stepping into this moment and saying, all these Passover meals for a thousand years, everything that God put in place way back then is pointing to something, and not just to something, but to someone. It's pointing to no other name but me. And so Jesus steps into this moment. It's what Isaiah 53 writes about. It says, The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, poured out his life unto death, and was numbered amongst the transgressors. And Mark is saying that Jesus steps into this moment and says, This is my body, broken for you. This is my blood poured out a new covenant, making a way. This is the, Easter is the greatest exchange in history. 
your sin, your mess, your shame, your brokenness for God's grace and mercy and forgiveness and love. And it's all by faith. And it's something someone else did on your behalf. They sacrificed, they were disadvantaged in order that you might have something greater. That's what sacrifice is. That's when you give up something for something better. There's this struggle that goes on. You begin reading back through this, and, and here's what I want to encourage you this week as we look into Holy Week, is to read Mark 14, 15, and 16 as we make our way to celebrate Easter because there is this, uh, there is this struggle that's getting ready to happen. We're going to fast forward to the end of this chapter. And there is this tug of war that is literally going on uh, between two kingdoms and two people of power. And some is... Some looks like they have great power, but it's actually a pseudo-power. And one has great power, and yet is willing to, to give that up. And here's this tug-of-war. How many of you have ever uh, played tug-of-war before? It's an interesting game if you've never done it. Uh, if you haven't, uh, go home. And if you like marriage counseling, this would be awesome just to have you know tug-of-wars. Um, actually, probably not. Uh, never mind. I'd lose. And so <coughs> this tug-of-war is literally, if you've ever played it, it it's just... A group of people on one side and a group of people on another side or one-on-one, mono-mono, whatever, and they dig their heels in and they're pulling with all their might for them to have authority and to overthrow their opponent, correct? That's the role of tug-of-war. Now, tug-of-wars happen all the time in rebellions, don't they? There's rebellions going on all around our world today. And it's literally just a big tug-of-war. But instead of pulling on a rope, they're, they're using something different. They use a sword, or they use guns, or they use missiles. But in this particular instance, there's a sword involved. And so this sword gets brought into this moment, and it's all about power. It's all about who's going to wield the power, who's going to have the power, and whose authority is going to win out. And so there's this challenge that goes on, right? And so Jesus is in the garden, and he's already been through uh, this whole prayer of asking God, is there another way for this to happen? And he says, not my will, but your will be done. And all of a sudden, he wakes up his sleeping disciples who have fallen asleep on him, and he says, "Time, the time is here, right? And toward the end of this chapter, here comes this crowd noise, this noise of people with lanterns, with uh, torches, with swords, who show up in front of Jesus And they have the power, it seems. And Judas is there. And Judas betrays him with a kiss, which is a sign of intimacy and yet deception at the same time. We we refer to it as that, don't we? And so in this moment, Jesus steps forward again. And what we see on display is this wielding power and this fight of who's actually going to be in charge. And so a whole crowd shows up, and they've got the swords, and they've got the power. And I think, I really believe, I believe Judas is trying to start a rebellion. Because when you're Jesus and you talk about a kingdom, and he talked about the kingdom all the time, what is a kingdom? A kingdom is 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 a reign. It's a way of life. It has political undertones to it. It has influence to it. And maybe in a lot of ways, these are a people who have lived oppressed by Rome for years. And they've been looking for a Messiah. But they've been looking for a military Messiah. Someone who would overthrow the great Rome and free Israel. Free the people, right? 
And so into this moment, maybe Judas is even just trying to kickstart that. And he shows up with this sword. And there's hundreds of soldiers around, potentially, there, and they're all armed. And here's what happens. I'll just, we'll read it here. Jesus is arrested here. Verse 43. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared with him. A crowd arrived with swords and clubs, sent with the chief priests and the elders, and there's other guards and such there. Now the betrayer had uh, arranged a signal. He does this. Going at once to Jesus, Judas says, Rabbi, and he kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Now, in this moment, you have probably a hundred people or so with swords and armor, right? And they're there stepping into this moment to lead a rebellion, to squish out what they think is another rebellion that Jesus is leading. And in this moment, someone draws a sword and swings it around. Take a wild guess who you think it is. Peter, because he just does everything first, right? And so Peter, being the masterful fisherman, cuts off a guy's ear. If you don't find that humorous, I'm sad for you. Because he's a fisherman. He cuts off a dude's ear. I don't know if he's trying to chop his head off or what, but he missed bad. Like, really bad. Like, if you're trying to, like, stab someone, I don't know what you did. Stick to fishing, right? Stick to the nets or something. But in this moment, we find out in another gospel account, Jesus actually picks up this ear, puts it back on this guy's head, and heals him in this moment, which is pretty miraculous. In another account, we see that Jesus stands there, and he takes this on. He's allowed, he allows himself to be arrested, and they ask him his name. And he says, I am. And he uses the name that God that gave himself in the Old Testament. I am. And literally, a hundred people just fall to the ground. So all these people with swords who were supposed to have the power just fall down because of a name that he simply says. So who really has the power in this moment? Well, Jesus does. But he's willing to be disadvantaged. He's willing to make a sacrifice in order for something greater. And here's the, here's the tr- struggle in this. These two kingdoms will always be at war. That's what Jesus says to Peter in another gospel. If you live by the sword, you will die by the sword. Put the sword away. See, what you're, you're falling victim in. Judas, I don't know why you came here with a bunch of clubs and swords, because if you thought I was leading a rebellion, you've totally missed what I'm about. I'm about a revolution, not a rebellion. And a rebellion is always about power. It's always about money. It's always about influence. It's all about who's in control. And it's always about military in a lot of ways and politics in a lot of ways, right? That's what a rebellion is. And rebellions have happened for thousands of years, haven't they? One rebellion will just rise up and squash another one, but then they live by the same rules. And they live by the same laws and the same things that govern their influence. And then someone else from another rebellion will rise up and take them out of power, but they will live by the same laws and the same rules and operate in the same mode of operation, and they will live by that. But Jesus is saying here, look, I'm not about a rebellion. I'm about a revolution of the heart. And that is so different 
than what you see. In fact, he says these words. Am I leading rebellion? He says rebellion literally in Greek means, am I leading this like guerrilla warfare where I just attack people? All these days I've been in the synagogue where you've, you could have come and arrest me. Every day I was with you teaching in the temple courts and you did not arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. And so Jesus steps into this moment where in a lot of ways leaders of rebellions want to rise up and say it's about money, it's about recognition, it's about success, it's about control. And Jesus says, no, I'm about a revolution. And my revolution is about surrender and about weakness and about putting others first. It's about love and it's about grace. And it changes the human heart. See, rebellions can rise up and they can change behavior and they can modify people's intentions but they will never change the heart. Revolutions change the heart. And the revolution Jesus leads is one that begins to say there's something different. There's something that this kingdom of God is so different than the kingdom of this world. And the kingdom of this world is numbered, and the kingdom of God has no end. And the revolution that he's about, Jesus used a revolution of love and sacrifice to overthrow our rebellion of sin and shame. He stepped forward into moments. Jesus was willingly, willing to go and to say, I'm going to do this on your behalf and on my behalf. And as you enter into Holy Week, that's what I want you to kind of wrestle with. To realize Jesus, he didn't pick up a sword. He actually stepped willingly into arrest and willingly toward the cross for you. Because his is a revolution of love not just a rebellious act trying to gain power. It's a revolution of the human heart. He steps toward the cross, the ultimate symbol of death, and he changes it into the ultimate symbol of love and life. And in that act, Easter changes everything. What's fascinating, I was reading this week, is uh, I want to leave you with this as we move toward communion, as we look back into worship and gather in that is verse 50 uh, of Mark chapter 14. The scriptures must be fulfilled, Jesus says. And then verse 50 just simply says this, then everyone deserted him and fled. Can you imagine that? For three years, you've invested your life into these guys. They've seen miracle after miracle. They've been a part of something so tremendous, so life-giving, so amazing. And when the sword comes, they flee. How about you? How about me? If I was there in that moment, would I be there or would I be running? Have I bought into the system that the kingdom of swords is really what matters? Or do I really believe that the kingdom of God is where the power's at? And there's a tension there, huh? That you got to wrestle with. And maybe this week, uh, that's just an image or a thought. Because here's what blows me away. 
that everybody runs and everybody flees. In fact, you can read in the next verse, it talks about one young lad who runs and they grab his cloak and he just streaks away. And what a symbol of shame that would have been in that culture. Most, uh, uh, most scholars believe that's Mark who's recording this. And Jesus steps into a moment when everyone else is left. And friends, we follow a Savior who steps into moments alone if he needs to for your sake and for mine. That's why we celebrate communion. And so tonight as we begin Holy Week, as we give you some time and some moments to, to remember, reflect on that. The truth is, Jesus stepped into a moment for you and for me. And often we can forget that. Often we can glaze over that. Often we can hear that because it's part of the meal. And we've heard it over and over But friend, I just want to refresh your heart maybe a little bit. That he stood in a moment alone, abandoned, because he was thinking about you. And he wanted to have a relationship with you. Here's the big idea again. The deliberate sacrifice Jesus made for us makes a way for us to have true freedom in life with God. The deliberate sacrifice that Jesus made for us makes a way for us to have true freedom in life with God. That's why next Sunday is the greatest celebration. It's also why this Sunday is humbling. Because if we're honest, we're probably just like the disciples who would have said, whoa, check you later, Jesus. I'm probably a lot more like that than I like to admit. And so I'm going to pray for us. And uh, here's the invitation for you. It's just to lean into Holy Week this week. To think about the deliberate sacrifice Jesus made that makes a way for you to have ultimate freedom and to have life with God and to live out of gratitude and thanks for that. That it's not based on your performance. It's not based on whether you would have stayed there or whether you would not have. It's based simply on the fact that we follow a Savior who steps into that moment because he's thinking about you. He's thinking about me. And so, Father, as we uh, move into a time of communion, as we take a moment here to worship you some more in song, in word, in, in tune, Father, would you stir us this week? God, we want to be a people that continue to be the church and to follow your example. And your example as you stepped into moments that everyone else ran away from. And you did it out of love. And you led and still lead a revolution of love that changes the human heart one life at a time. You don't lead a rebellion that's about power because you already have the power. But in that moment, you willingly gave it up so that we might find life with you through faith in Jesus. So as we take communion here in a moment, as we hold the the bread, as we hold that cup, may we remember this was your body, broken, given to us, that all those Passovers before were pointing to you, that this is the, the blood of a new covenant, that you sealed with the giving of your life, that we might have life with you. If you're a follower of Jesus here, I invite you to participate in that. If, if you're not, or if you just want to take a moment and reflect tonight, we're going to continue on in worship here in just a few moments.
and allow this to continue to stir your heart. Father, have your way in us tonight. We pray that in Jesus' name.